you really have to say, let me help you get to your goal. And this is how we're going to do it in a secure fashion, or this is how we're going to do add value through whatever our controls or mechanism or means are going to be. But the new, we have to be a business enabler moving forward. If you're not, I think you're loading yourself up for failure. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Dr. Tim Prophet, CISO at Inspirity. Tim and I talk about why he jumped at the chance of becoming a professor, other potential next steps once you're a CISO, and how he makes sure the security organization acts as a business enabler and not the opposite. Why isn't there a more natural path to, say, CEO or founder for the CISO than, say, CFO? Does the role of the CISO as a cross-functional business enabler make it naturally more suited to leading a business? And if so, what practical steps can you implement right now to start building the right skill set? Tim, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be on the show today uh, for the uninitiated, if you would. Introduce yourself. Tell us, who are you? Yeah, I am uh, Dr. Tim Prophet. I am the Managing Director of Information Security at a company here in Houston, Texas. And I am also a faculty member at a couple different institutions as a professor. We'll get a little more into the aspect of teaching and what got you into that. I find that being a part of educating others and even going through and figuring out how to develop curricula is a good thing for the mind for us in security. But before we go there, I want to go into sort of my thinly veiled mentorship question, which is actually getting into advice to your younger self. And when I asked you about that before, you said that young Tim, and this example so refer to him as young Tim, is going to waste a lot of time doing unnecessary things. Why is young Tim so foolish with his time or doing unnecessary things. What's, what is that and how do you avoid it? Right. Yeah. I always call that the uh, unanticipated time sink that young Tim spent a lot of time in. That was a lot of uh, video games. That was a lot of late night binging uh, TV shows that if I would go back and give myself advice was that was empty time wasted that you really could be doing something that you enjoyed already anyway. It's interesting because that description of playing video games is very different than going and getting a PhD. Correct. Correct. Yes. What flipped that switch? Because that's a pretty hard change. I think that's a personality trait that I have. And I've always had it my entire life. And I've recognized it now looking back, being a little bit older. I've got one of those traits that that I want to take something all the way to completion. And it's really anything like uh, building Legos, right? I wanted to just build the most massive thing I could. Um, if I was doing some kind of construction project, I would always try to take that as far as I always could. And I'd always planned on getting a bachelor's degree. That was kind of my plan. And my parents saw, always backed me up on that. And I did. And then I started getting into the cybersecurity space a little bit, and, and I, I took a, a class uh, from the Sands Institute, and I really enjoyed that. 
and I happened to take a second class because there was a second version of that. And there was a uh, Stephen Northcutt, which was the founder of the, of the Sands Institute, grabbed me one day at a conference and said, Hey, by the way, uh, the two classes you just took are going to qualify for this new master's program that we're building. Uh, would that be something you're interested in? And then my personality trait kicked in and said, Oh, you mean I can just go take this to the next level and get a master's? And so I wound up doing that with the Sands Institute. And then they had the provost at Sands, uh, Toby Goker, uh, was uh, grabbed me one day and said, Hey, you know, um, I've got this connection uh, with Walden and we could probably get you into the PhD program. And then my personality trait went, Oh, okay. Why don't we take it all the way to the very end and get the PhD? And so that's ultimately where it wound up going. It was kind of a ridiculous self bet with myself on whether I could do it or not. And of course, there's also the love of technology and expanding my knowledge. So that kind of led me there, but it really was, Oh, there's another level. Okay. Let's try that. And so, and so I did. Maybe a little bit of a bold question, but I think it's one that that some of us may consider or think about. It's obviously a time-consuming thing, especially for those in an established career that may have families and all these other sort of obligations. And it's not necessarily an inexpensive one either. Correct. I think there's two things here. So the the, the mentoring bit is you kind of went in and made a change. You realized that you're sort of wasting time and you need to do things for yourself and ultimately for others. And you've done that. The next is when you're on this journey to say, I'm going to allocate not only the time, but also the money, which, you know, the two, two of the sort of the, the most specific resources we have. Would you recommend others go down that path? Or when wouldn't you recommend to say, hey, go get a master's in security? What's your barometer there? It's going to be different for every person. And it really is self-reflection. I know that's going to sound like a little bit of a passe answer, but it really is going to depend on each person and what your outcome is going to be. Like I have, I have some folks that work for me today that are some of the most brilliant technologists and they do a fantastic job and they're just rock stars in the field, don't have bachelor's degrees. I wouldn't necessarily equate formal education to being a rock star in the IT field, but I would say that there's some rounding that comes with something like a master's that that person wouldn't necessarily have. You have to be dedicated with your personal life and saying, I, I need to realize that I'm going to be dedicating a couple hours every day of my life to, to getting this and obviously the pay, the pay as well. So I would recommend if I'm talking to young Tim or, or any of my students, I would, would say, if you can clearly tell me what you will get out of getting this master, like that's part of your personal plan then you should go for it. You know, the time, you shouldn't even worry about that. We can always come up with time. You're going to do what you want to do. You're going to make time for things that you really want to do. Can you afford it? Does it make, is it going to make sense in the long run? And if you can answer maybe, or you can answer yes, then you should probably do it. When I go back and think of, there was a, a master's program I did, which initially was called uh, Master Science in Network Security and then became Information Assurance. They added six credit hours originally from Capital College, uh, which is now Capital University, but it was a, a signals intelligence school that was started, I think, in 1926 or 1927. It's in Laurel, Maryland, right outside of NSA. It was a, a very fun program to do. And for me in my journey, it was very cost effective. My employer at the time paid for a, quite a lot of, uh, you know, most of the program. And I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, the classes to me were enjoyable. 
and I felt like I learned a lot and I, I kind of enjoyed the university experience, you know, the experience that they had, it was virtual, but it made a lot of sense. I, I have trouble sometimes though, and, and that's why I'm asking you as well, where, you know, it's either a great burden of debt or there's a condition where I think the person might not yet have the grit to finish. And I think some folks, and I'd like your opinion on this, believe that when I go get my master's degree, I'm now going to go make more money. And I don't often see that myself. Do you think that's a, an ill-conceived motivation? Yeah, I think you would, you have to really weigh that one when you're, when you're doing your analysis on whether it makes sense. Cause you're right. It does not always equate to more money. Now, I will say this, a, a couple things on, on a master and even, even a PhD to even to a greater extent is when you choose to go do a master's versus self study, like you're just educating yourself. When you go take uh, classes for a master's, you're going to be forced and be stretched in ways that you wouldn't normally impose on yourself, right? So you can self-study all you want to be a pen tester. That's great. But when you go and get your master's, they're going to stretch you in other areas like blue teaming or policy or compliance. And it's absolute knowledge that you're going to need if you're going to be someone that has a, that level of a master. So, so yes, it's going, to, it's going to stretch in ways that you wouldn't normally go. The master's is also when you obtain it, it's going to open doors that you didn't have before because there are doors that are going to have that, that kind of a barrier. So it may lead to money. It's definitely, and I will say this, and, and, and I've gone back and talked to people about this later, it absolutely opens doors that you would not have before. I do not question that at all. I, I completely agree. I think that it can be a door opener. People will view you sometimes differently. Sometimes in a positive way and sometimes maybe a little bit of a negative, you know, you kind of have to watch. I can remember when I was much younger, sort of dreaming, I guess, about I had finished some credentialing and finished some degrees. And, you know, you get excited even before you've completed them to say, ah, one day it's going to be my name, comma, in these credentials. And I think combining that for me with sort of the chip I had on my shoulder. So like personality. <laughs> plus credentials and sort of viewing that, it put a little, some people on their heels a little bit around me. I don't know that that was the right way to go. So you, you develop a, a persona and I was trying to develop the persona and it was just a little heavier than I originally thought, right? So you have more junior people that are like, oh goodness, I, Steve's gonna, if I mess up in front of Steve, he's really gonna let me have it. I think it's a combination. So I think that's the one element of caution I would share with the listener is just be careful in certain circles, but when do you play that up and when do you kind of mute that a little bit? You know, I don't have a PhD. Uh, that sort of plays into it a little bit and credentials do. And I don't know if you've got a, a mentoring lens on that uh, scenario for the listener that's considering advanced degrees and thinking about how they interact with their team members. Any, any opinion there? When you're talking about at the CISO level of the organization, that level of leadership, the credentialing is important. Uh, that does show that you've reached a certain bar and that you're able to self-educate and, and work with others. But it's just as important to have experience, right? So just credentials and no experience is not going to help you. And then the third, the, the trifecta is personality. And that's really what you're talking about. Having that situational awareness of knowing when to use experience, when your credentialing is going to help in the conversation and move some kind of barrier that you have. So yeah, it's really a couple different things all cobbled together that is what's going to help you with that success. 
if you would, I'd like to spend a second on in graduate work in working on your master's degree, PhD, or or even just a SANS class. Often there's a fair amount of report writing, you know, conveying information. To me, I think we miss the boat on that often in in information security, especially when we're earlier in our careers. And so you've had to figure out how to do that, both as a security leader and as a product of of your academic research and, and completion of these degrees. What would you recommend, again, for those that maybe haven't done all the schooling, but I have personally seen the benefit of additional education, those that have done it typically write uh, well and write more clearly. How do you infuse that into your program to the folks that, that maybe haven't done it yet? How do you make that part of your culture of writing well, communicating clearly? Yeah, that's really, and that really is a barrier that, that IT people have, or yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to lump a lot of people, administrators and developers is we don't generally have those polished skill sets because of just how our brains operate. And we're, we're good at other things and not so much. And, and most of the, of the folks that were going through my cohort with me on the PhD side, we were all terrified about when our research went to the, to the English professors to, to grade all that stuff. Right. So. My advice really is we have to seek out that skill set and develop that skill set. You hear me banging away a lot about how terrible we are at metrics as a group of, of engineers. When you go to the finance world, they've got a tremendous amount of good metrics. Um, sales and marketing generally has pretty good metrics. IT, not so much. Specifically in the, in the InfoSec, at least in my experience, um, there's so much more growth that we could have in, in writing, technical writing, in metrics and how we convey. And that really goes back to finding a partner or finding a mentor that's good in that area. And they don't even need to be a technologist, uh, just someone that's going to help with, with writing uh, is a fantastic resource. And I've got a couple people that I bounce things off of, and I'm always amazed at how they will change what I've written or how I've presented. And it's so much better than what I had had originally you know written uh, so yeah it's it's finding that resource that mentor and then us just uh, trying to to better ourselves and there's a tremendous amount of material out there i mean you can you can do easy google searches and find classes and, and quick hit seminars that you can go and and just spending a little bit of time on that will greatly improve our writing so i want to go back to metrics later but right now since you talked about mentorship one of the things you said that you wish you would have gotten better at earlier is being better at networking and finding a mentor. And in fact, you even told me that you regretted a little bit that, you know, it's almost too late now. You get to the point in your career, you almost don't need one in a way, right? We always need feedback, but you're kind of, you've kind of already cooked this loaf of bread, right? It's already sort of done. But what is your opinion and your advice, more importantly? on mentorship and on networking for the person who's still coming up. Right, yeah. And my, my advice would be seek out and try to find that quality mentor early on in your career or as a student or even once you, you know, get into the space. I'll admit it, I, I probably should have done better in trying to find a mentor. When I'm saying mentor, this is, is someone that is in your daily life. Daily is probably not the right word, but that can come alongside you and you can reach out at, you know, at any point during your week and say, Hey, I've got this particular scenario. Can you help me with this? And they will, you know, you would expect some correspondence back, whether it's a phone call or a lunch or, 
or even a LinkedIn conversation can really go a long way. And I think I, I waited too long. And I, and I do have some mentors that I lean on in the IT space, but I wish I'd had picked one up in the cybersecurity space a lot earlier than what I did. Because you're right, when you, when you get to a certain point and you get to a level, then people are more looking for you to be the mentor than you trying than trying to help you be your mentor. So yeah, there 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 could be a problem there. It's interesting because you kind of get to the point. This is another sort of conundrum within IT security: is when you're a, a CISO or sort of a senior security person, it's rare for me to see that person sort of leave that post and move into another position to become a CIO let's say, or to become any, anything other than the, the chief security person. And that is sort of a ceiling on the position in many ways, which then affects who you can go to for mentorship. If you're done, you're kind of now the mentor. Uh, I don't know if you've got an, a thought on that or not. The career arc. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm just thinking this through in real time as you bring that point up. And, and I'm wondering if that's if the reason is that CSO is so valuable in that particular role that you don't have peers wanting you to leap out of that. Like I, I could see where you might have a CSO become a CEO, but it would seem really strange to have a CFO flip over and be a CSO. Right. So I don't know if it's the skill set is just so valuable in that space that it's just not a progression that someone would want to see. I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. But that's a really good question. One of the things I think that we need to think about just in terms of the career of what we do is what is the career arc of a CSO, CISO, whatever the position is of, of a senior security person? What should be the path after? Is that more of a, a soft approach, which is more mentorship? Is it advisory? Is it coaching other newer CISOs? What do you think it, it should be? If we don't think there's a more natural progression, typically we don't see it. What maybe is the unnatural progression of the role? Of what, what do the more senior guys do? Is it teaching? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think from what I've seen in my own experience, those people progress either into board of directors roles when they come to the end. And that's that's become a pretty popular thing on on major corporations is having that oversight at the board level that you don't generally see board members being cybersecurity experts or having that experience. So that's kind of a trend that I see as you progress into sitting on some on some large boards. It is potentially being a CEO and spinning off your own consultancy or organization. And yes, I would I would definitely say uh, moving into teaching is another really, really good avenue. So that may be a, a, a very natural thing to transition into. So you teach now and uh, you're probably not doing it because it's bringing you financial wealth. Uh, you're doing it because it brings you other types of wealth and happiness. What would you recommend if someone's considering that's never taught before ever, and maybe they have a master's, maybe they have a PhD, but they haven't yet taught? What should they be thinking about? That's a great question. You, it is relatively easy to get onto a community college if you have those kind of credentials. Uh, most community colleges are going to ask for a master's unless you're a special case. And I, I do know a couple special cases if they're credentialed enough and they have enough experience. But if you've got a master's, you generally are going to have your foot in the door for a lot of the community colleges. And the way we're working today and the coming through the pandemic, we're showing that you really can be an adjunct professor from anywhere. So there's a plethora of colleges that you can sign up for. 
And I would recommend anybody to try at least one class, you know, teach one semester, teach just some class. Um, if it's an intro class or maybe you're a subject matter expert in in something like an operating system or or networking or virtualization or even like project manager, uh, those classes are quite fun to teach. And I'll be honest, the reason that I jumped into even being a professor is I had some really cool professors in my first four years that I really admired. And at the exact same time, I had some really awful professors. When I got to the point where I said, hey, you know what? I think it would be a pretty good idea to teach. I immediately said, you know what? I want to go back and be that really cool professor that brings a breadth of actual, hey, this is what we did today in this field and check out how cool this is and how much fun this could be. And my hope is to take a student that was not thinking about being a technologist and at the end of the semester go, hey, I'm going to go into the IT field. That would be really, really cool. If you want to be that type of person that can change the new generation and bring some folks into the field that would not normally be there, then you might be a really good adjunct professor. You're hitting on a point where you're introducing more people into a field who needs more people, uh, first off, right? And, and hopefully you can be the, the cool teacher but maybe more importantly than cool is being relevant. We've all had professors that maybe they've not done the job ever uh, or, you know, and there's a number of reasons why they took the post to teach. Maybe they were just a last minute fill in. You never know. But on the upside, there's a real benefit to having someone who's done the work and is doing the work. What an amazing opportunity to learn from that person. Right. And I get a lot of that feedback from my students. Uh, then we, we look at the evaluations and most colleges, their students rate their professors at the end of the semester. And a lot of the feedback that I get is I w- was so thankful, you know, the students saying, I was so thankful that, that you brought real world experience and you're, you're teaching us what, what you're seeing every day. And we don't get that in our normal classes. Maybe finish the thought here. Being a college professor makes me better at my day job in this way, dot, dot, dot. In that I can view the problems that the business is bringing me. And when I'm saying business, this would be like marketing or finance or legal, the the different business units. It lets me view that with a different lens because I'm getting that influence and that lens from my students when they're asking me questions. And when you've been in the IT field for 30 plus years, you're pretty set and you've got a, a viewpoint and when someone brings you a valid viewpoint from a different direction, that's kind of refreshing. And you're like, wow, I never really thought about that. And hey, I, I need this outage for patching machines. And what you're telling me is, hey, my customers expect me to be at 24 you know, hours a day, seven days a week. The technologist in me is like, no, I need to patch because that's a vulnerability there and we may get hacked. But the business is like, no, you can't take my system down because I'm going to lose revenue, right? So it's just this different lens that you get from just this diverse group of people that are your students that you just you wouldn't get just working in your day job. So it's kind of like the students allow you to practice sort of the conveyance of information from non-technical people because they're not really technical yet in most cases. And so it's it's if you can manage them in many ways and explain it to them, it's almost as if that's practice for the other folks who also may not be technicians or sort of, that's kind of how I just internalized it. That may not be what you meant, but that's kind of what I feel like. And I'm thinking through this here now too. And the other thing that I've, that I've noticed, and it, it's kind of fun, is specifically being in the cybersecurity field is the students that I get in a lot of my classes, they're on the front lines of 
some of the hacks and just the crazy apps and things that you can find out on the web that do all kinds of interesting things. And they'll come to me and say, hey, are you aware that XYZ application is able to do this thing? Have you ever seen that before? And I'll go, wow, no, I've never seen that. And that is a really good way to exfiltrate data out of my organization. And I'll come back in and figure out, okay, how do we mitigate that? Because I know people, if my students are doing it, I know other people are doing it. And so, yeah, that'll bring me some new technologies or new concepts because they're seeing and they're doing it with their friends that we just don't think about. You're sort of crowdsourcing via your students different technologies or methods, right? They're sort of bringing you these things that... Yeah, they're another threat feed for me that, I, that I'm not paying for. That's a really good... Yeah, that's a that's a, a threat feed or insider threat feed. Yeah, fantastic. That's a great way of putting it. One of the things we talked about is, and it's becoming one of my one of my favorite questions. I think there's maybe two here. What do most people get wrong about information security? What what do we miss as let's say analysts or even leaders about security? What do we not go deep enough into? Yeah, that I think you you hit the nail on the head. I think too much of the time people are having a cursory. 5,000 foot view of what really is involved in, in information security or cybersecurity. And there, it's just such a deep well to really get down to the root cause of why things are the way they are, whether why did something happen this way? Why was this attacker, you know, successful? Why is this insecure? And I think too many times, even us as technologists or in cybersecurity people don't dive deep enough into the tech. There's always, and you know, like I keep saying, I've been doing this for a long time. It's always deeper. You can always get deeper and understand why things are the way they are. And when you do that, you're gaining a new perspective, and it's always going to help you the next time that problem comes up. So I, I think too often people pass through and just have a high level understanding, and they take away and they make their decisions based on too high of a level of knowledge. Where if they would take the time or just listen to their engineers, it would help them make a better decision. I completely agree. I, I see in my position too many, and this is a little bit pointed, but as an example, too many security operations centers that are just effectively flipped into help desks or ticket closing centers, and they're they're managing problems, but they're not actually getting at the core of what allowed maybe the incident or the compromise to occur. And because they don't go into that or their leadership's not asking them to, they never really get at the core of what's creating these incidents in the first place. So the, the back into that true root cause, because if you don't do that, you deprive yourself the opportunity to then make that what I'll call organizational or business process or technical change to help sort of cut down on the funnel of garbage that you have to deal with. And so that's one of the things I think, and it's hard to do. It's hard to train junior analysts or mid-level people or even senior to say, okay, how are we going to get, how did this really get infected? And what is there a change that we can do other than updating and patching or even contacting a vendor? What's a change we can make, sometimes for free, that can help us avoid the situation? That's expensive to do. That's humanly expensive. Yeah, that's exactly what I can say. That's time and money. And time and money is time and people resources and and if you have a SOC that is overwhelmed and it's understaffed, you're not doing lessons learned and root cause analysis. And, and I would always be an advocate for you have to find a way to do that. And if we're 
if we're in a leadership role and we want to develop the next level of security leaders, taking someone from the SOC and saying, okay, this particular incident, you're going to do root cause analysis and you're going to write up a lessons learned and you're going to present it to some level of management. If you have them do that enough, you're building a skill set in that SOC analyst that they would never have otherwise, right? You're teaching them presentation, how to put that information together in a logical manner. You're making them dive in to truly understand. And if your your SOC manager is doing you know, a Q analysis with them, then then you're going to have a good product. And you're raising the skill set of that particular person just by doing lessons learned. It's so important. And then once you do that and can present that information, then you can, with your engineers, with the rest of IT, begin to look at ways to modify or change your environment to be more resilient to those problems. And I have often said that the real value of a security team is their ability to create change in the company long term. And there's both sort of proximal and distal types of changes, but the ability to say, look, I I see a misconfiguration in the way that we've built our servers or desktops or a silly business process. We see this as a cause of compromise or infection or friction, to use a non-technical term, right? How do we fix this? How do we make it better? That, to me, is, is the single greatest thing over time where I see the difference between a mediocre and a great program. I'd like to know your thoughts on or opinion on that. And then if you would also, because you've taught project and program management classes, when I asked about your root cause analysis technique, just a simple one for the listener, uh, you had an idea in mind. If you would you know, give your feedback on what I shared and then give your feedback or opinion on a root cause analysis process that, that you would recommend to start off with. Really, to your first question, I think every security program really should be expending time on a risk register. If you're going to transform the business, if you have your teams, if that's security engineering and SOC team and your pen testers and you got your blue guys and your purple teams and and whatever different organization, how you got that divided up, if they're all working towards filling out and maintaining a risk register, and then you present those risk register findings to a level of management, you would be surprised if you're not doing that, how much change you can affect by just that. The leadership would go, okay, well, why aren't we addressing these risks? And then you can outline, these are why we need money here. We need people here. This is just a simple configuration change, but we need XYZ's help in doing that. Uh, but just presenting simple a risk matrix is or risk register is very profound. So your second question, when it comes to root cause analysis, there's a lot of techniques that exist out there. If you start studying formal project management, the agile and the scrum methods have a lot of, even the waterfall, the older waterfall methods had a lot of, of different techniques to get to the bottom. But there's some really, really simple, and, it, and let's say your program's not that sophisticated, you don't have any project managers uh, that are trained in this, there's some really simple ways. The five whys is a really common one. I think we talked about the five whys. If you ask a question or someone presents their findings to you and you say, well, why is that? Then they ought to be able to give you an answer. And to that answer, you would ask, well, why is that? And if they can go five levels of whys, then they have a pretty good understanding of the root cause and why it worked. If they stop at the third why and the answer is, well, that's because that's how it is. 
uh, they probably don't have a good understanding. But the five whys is just one. There's the fishbone diagrams are a good one. The SWOT analysis is another really good one. Uh, there's a ton of different techniques, and you're going to have to find one that makes the most sense for your team. But if you're not using some kind of formalized root cause method to get to the bottom of something, then I would argue that you're doing it wrong. I completely agree. One of the other things we talked about, I was asking you, what do we do in our position that we don't get enough credit for? And you had kind of a fun answer of, you know, things run smoothly when furious work is happening. What does that mean? And and what else don't we get enough credit for that sort of, I I feel like this plagues our career and the programs that we often run. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, you're, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and it really is, we don't get credit when everything is running smoothly. It's kind of like if I had an analogy is you don't really think about the power company and those line workers that are maintaining the power lines until you're in Houston and something like Hurricane Harvey comes through and you don't have power for, you know, for three or four weeks, right? Then you're thinking a lot about the power company. So I think we do a lot, so much of today's organizations, regardless of what business you're in, is running on technology. And if that's not running well, or if it is running well, then we generally don't get credit. You know, we're doing, but if it's not running well, then then we're, they're all over us, right? Business wants to know what's going on. I think that's really, we wind up being the unsung heroes a lot when technology is, is working well, when the internet works and everybody just expects to come to work and sit down and launch Chrome or Internet Explorer and get to the internet uh, and go, you know, go to Facebook or, or Yahoo Finance to figure out what their stocks are doing. But a lot of people don't realize the amount of manpower and dollars it takes just to have that simple thing work, let alone a Salesforce implementation or, or a major database application. How do we begin to approach this problem? If we're going to consider ourselves a good leader and a relevant leader, and we believe that we don't get enough credit. So if we're going to say, if we, if we believe both those things, we're going to be, we're a good leader and we don't get enough credit. How do we get out of that hole? Right. Yeah. And, and we've, we've talked about that a second ago in metrics. And I, my answer is, I believe that we as leaders, if that's the case, if we're not getting enough credit, it's because we're not creating good metrics. And I'm not talking about metrics that are this many intrusions uh, happened over over the last 15 minutes. That, that's metrics like what our employees are doing. Um, I know return on security investments generally hard to do and balanced scorecards are generally hard to do. But there are some metrics that we can be keeping like outage metrics and uh, the metrics that if we have a SOC, like what kind of fires the SOC is dealing with on a daily basis, how many like how much of our attacks are email attacks versus denial of the service attacks? And how long did agents work on a particular incident to get to the bottom of it? Like, is, are our incidents taking 16 hours to get to resolution? Or are they taking 10 minutes? Is it, are we wasting all of our time on pulling phishing campaigns out of our mailboxes? Uh, or is it password resets, right? So we can do a lot of things on how many firewall changes are we being asked to make on a weekly basis and how long do those like what's the time to resolution on those so there's some some pretty easy metrics i think we can do just with you know an excel spreadsheet and some time reporting that we generally don't do because either we don't know how to do it or we don't think that we can do it because we don't have enough time but if we're going to get to the point where we're going to get credit for all the work we're doing we have to be able to show in a quantitative method what we're doing. And that's through metrics. 
you told me, and I and I like this. You said that good metrics show work being done, and I like that. Is there ever a case, though, where a good metric is not showing effort? Now, to be very clear, I'm I'm very big on effort and sort of capability-aligned metrics. But is there ever a metric that is not maybe even a metric at all, but something on which you report that uh, lends itself to good credit? Anything that, that falls outside of that, that first uh, kind of bucket? Ooh, so you're asking uh, if there is such thing as a, as a bad metric that will not help us? Well, that's actually another question yet. I haven't, I haven't even gotten there. Is, is there a metric that's not effort-driven that, or, or something on which you report to get credit? Maybe that's a better way of stating it. That is not like a count of something. It is a, a representation of something else that's not sort of a computed, if you will. Ooh, you know, I don't know that I know of that metric. If I'm sitting here thinking about that, uh, I would say that that all of the ones that I've tried to produce or have produced or talked to colleagues, um, they all have some kind of value. But the only one that's really popping up to my mind that I think it's a terrible metric for IT, it's a, a better metric in other organizations or other departments, but like the time to close. I mean, anybody that's worked on a help desk or or has been a, a, an IT engineer. Um, looks at that metric and says, that is an awful metric because that is not telling the whole story of what happened here, right? On how long it took me to solve this problem because it's either not recorded in the metric properly uh, or it doesn't reflect all of the work that went into all the other tickets that were the exact same that came into that. And I think too many times people outside the IT organization want to understand time to close or time to resolution. And that's probably fine on a call center or um, working with sales in some capacity. But in the IT field, the amount of work that's done sometimes to close something is never reflected properly in that. So if we're talking about a bad metric. It would be something around that, that level. I completely agree. The issue is that we end up crowbarring an issue into a ticket that may or may not represent the effort. And then if staff see us sort of rewarding fast close times, we're going to get many unintended consequences around that. You're going to get a lot of half-ass work is what you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. I would advise not tracking that at all, unless it's a process that is so repeatable. uh, It's the exact same time every time. At that point in time, you need to question if it's so repeatable, then why isn't it automated, you know, to begin with, right? You need to be looking at that as an automation candidate if it's repeatable to that degree, then work on automating that. That's clearly something that's of maybe even high frequency, but low value if you're at the point. Yeah, that, that wouldn't even be a metric that I would be interested in showing anybody because at that point, what's the value of the metric? Correct. The only thing, and it's, it's a tricky question, the earlier one that I had, but I, I like asking it. And the only example I have really is on something that's, a, that's less of a sort of a, a computation of effort is if you're part of an organization where you get a lot of questions about your security program that is beyond an audit, but more like maybe you're helping close a deal, maybe it's part of their third-party risk assessment, maybe security is a hot topic for them as a potential customer, 
Maybe you've helped supply information or had to do extra work or maybe even do demos or host them in your facility or do extra interviews. At that point, you're a part, a small part maybe, but a part of bringing in new business. You're helping, and I learned this through breach leadership, after you have a breach, people are keenly interested, the board in particular, your ability to retain and acquire new logos. And people who have listened to the show know I'm keen on this. And so if you can kind of add to that and say, hey, here's how many deals we've helped, we've assisted in closing based on our extra effort, you're not sort of adding in, you know, you're not talking about malware or, or root cause analysis. You're talking about, hey, you're, you're instilling confidence into the market. And having that in your back pocket, I think, is something to work toward. I had a lot of success with that. And so I try to share it. But that's the only real example. Uh, but I'm trying to find other examples if they've been good in a, in a sticky situation or in a tough situation for a CISO or a leader. I would argue that new CISOs should be developing a packet that could be handed out to, let's say, a prospect or a client for whatever business you are. You should be developing that packet, and I call it the feel-good security packet. And it ought to be outlining, this is what my security practices are. This is, these are the things and the processes and the products to an extent, uh, you don't want to, you know, give away your entire uh, scheme of how you're how you're defending the organization. But you ought to be putting together a package that your sales team or your liaisons can hand out and make people comfortable. I mean, the shared assessments concept, if you're familiar with those guys, I thought was a really nice game changer in the space where they came together and said, "Hey, is this unbiased conglomerate? We're going to come up and we're going to produce this spreadsheet that has a bajillion different." settings and you can fill this out and you can share this with everybody. And if we get more and more people leveraging this shared assessment spreadsheet, we can start doing some filtering to understand where there's problems. I think that's a really good movement. Uh, I'm not saying everybody goes out and uses shared assessments, but that's one that I like. But yeah, we ought to be developing that packet. And I will say I've been in Sparity 22 years now. I would say in the last five years, more and more I'm having prospects, even existing clients, having conversations with me about, okay, let's talk about, I know we're going to come on and be a customer, but let's talk about what data security means to your organization. And my colleagues uh, and other organizations are seeing the same thing. Hey, we're getting pulled more into, into the sales cycle because business owners are now more interested in that. And maybe that's driven by, the, by their board of directors or just the, the uh, business owners are becoming more and more aware of the the risk they have to their data. Tim, when you get pulled into that, is it primarily just you getting pulled in or do you are there others in your team that that get put forth to kind of carry that that message? Is it is it primarily you or is there a a team of people? I'm curious operationally how that works. And I guess this is going to be the same for other companies that are the size of of mine. Uh, you're going to see cybersecurity or information security is definitely a component of that. Privacy has become a big component as well. Uh, and you're starting to see a delineation between compliance and privacy and security because those really are becoming three big monsters on their own and they need representation each. So it's generally me. It's someone representing privacy. It's someone representing uh, the legal or compliance aspects. Absolutely. If you had one piece of advice for maybe someone's not yet gotten into this rhythm yet of kind of representing their program, you know, I'm sure they're getting questionnaires, but they're not maybe doing it to the depth that you're describing here. 
and they got to figure it out. You know, you mentioned having kind of this material made that is shareable. Uh, how do you hit the sweet spot on that? How do you, is it a white paper? Is it a presentation? And do you coach the people that receive that on how to deliver it or do you deliver it directly? How do, like, let's pretend, Tim, I'm a prospect and I'm interested in learning more about your program. What's your advice on the type of information that, that should be given and, and what's your sort of your step one or step zero on, on creating that? Yeah, that's that packet that I'm talking about that CISO should try to have built. Um, and I'm sure most people are, that are in this space realize that you get questionnaires like crazy all the time. And what we did for the longest time was, if you look at those questionnaires, it's generally the same kind of questions, just asked slightly different. So it's pretty easy to build a template of a questionnaire that's going to answer the majority of the questions that are coming at your particular industry. So, I mean, obviously, if you're if you're doing something uh, in manufacturing, that's going to look different than someone's that's doing something in payroll processing. It's going to look different than someone that's building hammers. You're going to have a pretty good idea of those questions after a period of time. And that's what we do is I just have a document that's going to answer 99% of those questionnaires already. And so before they even ask, I'm just providing them the answers. Here's going to be the answer to all of your questionnaires already. Here's going to be our security statement of how the organization is run. Oh, and here's uh, this particular certification we have. Here's SOC 1, SOC 2, SOC 3. And you just have that packet ready, and we just try to beat them to the punch. And that's really, uh, for a CISO, that shouldn't be that difficult to obtain that information. It, obviously, it's work, and, it, and that might be brainstorming with your engineers and, and your compliance folks and maybe your legal team to make sure that you're okay with everything you're handing out to a prospect. That's not that hard to put that packet together. Several years ago, we had, uh, I think, a similar packet. But one of the things we ended up adding to it, even if the questions were good, uh, or the answers, I should say, to the questions were, were good and, and they were acceptable, we had cases where they would still want to come out and meet in person. And, and that's a little bit of a kind of an in-person audit that would occur. But it was more, I think, of a a confidence thing. They wanted to come out and see the eyeballs uh, of of the folks that were actually doing the work, and uh, they needed confidence sort of injected into it over and above a spreadsheet. And one of the things we put together, and listeners have heard me say this, but we had kind of three high-level, relatively short presentations of who we are, what we do, and where we're going. And it's kind of a Hollywood version of all of what you just described. It took us a long time to get that right, to make it sort of human consumable and not sort of a techno speak. I don't know if that's part of this kit or packet or if it's a, a derivative of it uh, in your world, but have you heard of anything like that? And is it is it the same thing or is there anything different? I think that would be a little bit different for my type position because you were doing this as a consultant, I'm assuming, and you were selling your services that were specifically technology related, where mine is not, right? I've, I've got this large book of business that's all these things that happens to have a technology back end. So the packet I'm producing is for when they get to now asking about how our technology runs, you're able to provide that. So I'm not selling technology services. I'm just ready to answer the questions when they're going to ask me about, oh, by the way, how is my backend data going to be protected? In that example, I was actually in charge of cybersecurity analytics and response capabilities for a, a very large company. So I was not a consultant at that point, 
But it, we, we did that just because there was just for full disclosure, uh, the organization had had a breach and we were part of the group that sort of built the new capability and we had to make people feel confident about it. And so you had to give that kind of kind of that that high touch feel good. Uh, hey, there's there's some extra help here on the sales process. But that's an interesting question. I wonder if that's still the case. And I haven't done any research in this area, but we're we're kind of in a world where there's a breach like every other day. Right. And I wonder if that really still is kind of the status quo or if folks are starting to take these, yeah, you know, because third-party risk assessment kind of is, is the big buzzword or has been uh, for a couple of years. And, and we're starting to see a lot of third parties doing the third-party risk assessment for the client, right? And they've kind of, that they're a well-oiled machine and they already know what they're asking. And, and so I'm guessing that the businesses are relying on a, on a third party to handle that third party risk for them. And, and I don't, I don't know if that, if that's still the case or not. So that's a, that's a good question. One of the questions that we have that we ask, and this is a, kind of a closing question, but it's tied into even to the name of the show pursuant to it, uh, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, if I had to boil it down, I would say that you have to be a business enabler. And I've been saying this for a while uh, when I talk. If anybody's heard me talk, I've, I've been saying that for a while. And you can see Dr. Eric Cole is another one that's, that's all over the place. And he does it so much better than I do. But we have to be a business enabler. We're, we're to the point where we really can't be a barrier to the business in InfoSec any longer. We really have to say, let me help you get to your goal. And this is how we're going to do it in a secure fashion, or this is how we're going to do add value through whatever our controls or mechanism or means are going to be. But the new, we have to be a business enabler moving forward. If you're not, I think you're loading yourself up for failure. I agree to that for sure. And, and uh, actually, uh, Dr. Cole was on the show uh, a couple episodes ago, and uh, he would have echoed the same point. It's great to hear it from you as well. And it's also great to have you on the show and contribute uh, all your knowledge to the community and to current and future leaders. I can't thank you enough. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a great time. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.